What drives your life? What motivates you to get up and go forward no matter what? I used to enjoy, enjoy watching TV program called a Biography uh, by A&E. Biography was not just entertaining, but actually educating. And one biography that I remember was that of a Jay Leno comedian. How many of you don't know who Jay Leno is? Okay. All right. There's some people don't know. Okay. I was I was wondering should I put up the picture or not? Okay. My cultural reference point is getting farther and farther away from most of you. So be it. Uh, Jay Leno uh, was, uh, hosted a Tonight Show from 1992 to nine, uh, 2009 and later 2010 to 2014. In his heyday, Jay Leno was uh, paid $15 million a year. But did you know that he still performed, performed uh, 100 to 150 stand-up comedies annually across the country? Why? It was not the money that drove him. He loves a comedy because a comedy brings a laughter and joy to the people. He loves to write a jokes. And by the way, for one time he got into trouble because according to Hollywood contract, you cannot, you know, the comedian, they can just tell the jokes. They cannot write because that's a violation against the writer's guild. So he was even sued for writing his own jokes but he loves to write a joke and loves to tell the jokes. Only time he canceled his show for two consecutive days was when he was hospitalized for undisclosed sickness in 2009. Later, he confessed that it was simply a physical exhaustion. So, for comedy, not money, Jay Leno worked exhaustively. How about us? What drives us? What motivates you to work hard? If a money, family, school, health, everything is well taken care, would you still be driven? If so, what is the one thing that drives you? For Apostle Paul, it was a reconciliation of Christ for sinners and God that drove him with a relentless passion and joy. With that, let's read our text today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 25, responsibly once again. Ready? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to the present you, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith and establish it and firm and do not move from hope held out in the gospel, this is a gospel you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh that is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. I will become a servant by commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. 
To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have a full riches of a complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'll tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding argument. For though I am absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. What drove Apostle Paul was a joy and privilege and responsibility of reconciliation with God in Christ. I call it ravishment of a reconciled. Ravishment is a synonym for ecstasy or rapture. It means not just a joy, but a great joy, almost a crazy joy. Because last week, we found out that our Redeemer is a creator and sustainer of a universe from Paul's cosmic Christology. You know, some New Testament scholars think that Paul's quote of the hymn about the cosmic Christ was actually digression after his praise because his heart and mind was so captured and so raptured with a Christ-saving love. I'm not sure if, if that was a, a digression. But if so, I'm so glad Paul digressed because it's a digression about the cosmic Christ enlarged and empowered my view of a Christ. Once again, I find the Christology study of a Christ is the most sexy thing in the world. It's so sexy. That means so attractive, so attractive, so transformative. And once again, I found out the... Uh, so. I don't think it was a, you know, uh, it was a digression, but actually it was a deeper foundation that Paul was laying out before he shared this ministry update with his readers. You know, Apostle Paul have a usual uh, pattern in his letter. First, his salute, you know, his greeting, the salutation. That's the, what we studied in the first week. And the second uh, is a prayer that was we studied in second week. And then he goes to ministry update. But last week, that's what we're going to actually look at today. And because that's a very relevant to their situation today. And the situation about Colossians was that, the, uh, as we just read in the chapter 2, verse 1, they never met Paul, or Paul didn't visit them yet. So, and then they were under attack by false philosophers and religious you know, uh, people like uh, mystics. So Paul had to tell the their pastor Epaphros, and then church, you know, Colossian church that 
Even though I'm, I'm not with you, don't worry. Everything's still under control of a Christ, the cosmic ruler, the head of the church. And here today, rather than offering a, a defensive apology for his absence, Paul actually went on the spiritual offensive as a reconciled people of God. So in this passage, I find the three driving forces or ravishment of the reconciled. And uh, they are, let me give you an outline. The outlines are, the three driving forces of a reconciled people are magnitude, mission, and momentum. Magnitude, mission, and momentum. So first driving force or ravishment of a reconciled is a magnitude of a reconciliation. Look at the verse 21 and 25. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Here Paul expressed the magnitude of our reconciliation in three aspects. First aspect of a magnitude of reconciled that Paul highlights is a contrast of a Colossians' attitude and stance toward God before and after. For that, Paul used the phrase, once but now, once but now. Once they were strange and hostile to God because of their ignorance and arrogance, but now they are reconciled to God and they revere God, revere God more than anything. Do you have once but now experience with God? Do you have a once but now experience with God? We don't have a many once but now stories in our life. Uh, for instance, yesterday I went to a new cafe opened in Richardson uh, called the Seventh Day. Where's the same old? Oh, okay. Well, you have to receive a special invitation to go there. There in that cafe, I saw something uh, interesting that I rarely found in other cafes. Sam wrote a testimony about why he and his co-owner opened that uh, uh, cafe. And testimony is basically this. Once, quote, I was a professional account accountant who was studying for CPA exam but couldn't study at home. So I visited many cafes in DFW and fell in love with the coffee. Once. So he was saying that once I was an accountant, but now I'm a lover of a coffee, and I'm going to share my joy with you. That's her, you know, his story. So what is your once but now testimony about God? You know, the testimony of a Colossian Christians is very similar to mine and many who converted into Christianity. When I didn't believe in Jesus, I wasn't just an unbeliever or so-called non-Christian. I was actually anti-Christian. You know why? Because I found the Christian to be arrogant and hypocritical. They seem to be arrogant to me because of their exclusive claim. You know, statement that Christianity is the only truth, the only way to salvation was too narrow and even obnoxious to me and many other religious people. But guess what? Now I believe the exclusive claim. Do you know why? It's because of Jesus Christ. 
That, exclaim, that, that exclusive claim came from Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ said, I am the truth and the I am the life and the I am the way and no one can come to Father except through me. You know, no human being ever made a, that kind of an exclusive claim. Jesus alone claimed that he is Son of God or God incarnated in human flesh, and that he actually pre-existed before anything and every, anyone. Do you know why other religions don't make this kind of ex exclusive claim? Because they're founders. They're not from God. And they never made this kind of exclusive claim. Everything about Christianity, especially this exclusive claim, came from who Jesus Christ claimed to be. So, you have to really ask a question, who is this man to make this kind of a crazy claim about him being an eternal God? That is a crux of a matter. And by the way, I want to be clarify one thing. Christianity is not, the most not only the most exclusive, but also most inclusive religion at the same time. Because Jesus said, anyone, anyone who hears my word and believes the one who sent me, that means God, has an eternal life. And will, you know, will not come to judgment, but have a cross from death to life. Jesus said, anyone. On the other hand, the religions who don't make an exclusive claim like Christianity, in a way, they are also exclusive. Because at the end, you have to follow their religious dogma or there is a religious ritual, otherwise you are not in. Now, let me move on to the second aspect of a magnitude of a reconciled, which is a concreteness of a Christ's redemptive act. You know, verse 22 says that God has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death. And here, Apostle Paul employed a unique expression, Christ's death in his physical body. What is a physical body? Do you find that expression strange? Is there another body other than physical body? Does it sound redundant to you? If you look at the expression in Greek, you can see Paul's point. Paul used two different Greek words for body to accentuate the physicality, physicality of a physical, I mean, Christ's death. So two words that he used was soma and sarcos. Soma and sarcos. Soma is a positive term, like a psychosomatic. You know, that's, a, you know, psychosomatic. Whereas sarcos is actually a negative term for the body. And so uh, English translation would be like a flesh or even meat. Combining these two terms together, soma of sarcos, Paul wanted to make sure that we understand the death of Christ is real. The death of Christ was not a figurative, poetic, or even spiritual. It's a concrete, physical, just like any dead bodies, any dead person's body. And through this, Paul wants to show us that cosmic ruler, he became a crucified redeemer to save us. 
Often Christians sanitize the cross of Christ with a religious you know, reverence and personal piety. I really think that a right way to see the cross of Christ is always combine the holiness of God's forgiving love with the horror of a human hatred and rejection. We cannot adore the cross of Christ without appalling shock. So James Conn, the father of so-called black theology, captures the scandal of the cross very well, especially in American context. So let me, re re let me, uh, let me read his quote. The cross and lynching tree, do we have that quote? The cross and the lynching tree interpret each other. Both were public spectacles, shameful events, instrument of a punishment re reserved for the most despised people in society. Any genuine theology, any genuine preaching of the Christian gospel must be measured against the test of a scandal of the cross and the lynching tree. Jesus didn't die a gentle death like a Socrates with a cup of a helmet. Rather, he died like a lynched black victim or common black criminal in torment on the tree of a shame. The crowd shout, crucify him, anticipated the white mob shout, lynch him. Jesus agonizing final cry of abandonment from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was similar to the lynched victim Sam Hose, or awful scream as he drew his final breath, Oh my God, oh Jesus. By the way, Sam Hose is a well-known uh, victim of a lynching in Georgia. You can Google and hear his sad story. It's a horror. In each case, it was a cruel, agonizing, and contemptible, contemptible death. The only difference between cross and the lynching tree is that one on the cross was not a helpless, marginalized descendant of a former African-American slave. He was the highest and mightiest king of the universe. Can you see the magnitude of our reconciliation in Christ's concrete death that contrasts everything we know about power and God? Christ's concrete death on the cross challenges our notion about power. The final expression of a magnitude of reconciliation is change it brings to us. Verse 22 says that God reconciled us to himself through the death of Christ's physical body in order to present us wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Christ went through the shameful, painful, physical death to make us holy, pure, and blameless. Did you know that our Savior died? Not only, he, he saved us, not only from our sins, but he saved us for his glory. On this glorious change, I'll come back at the end. Now let us go to the second force that drives a reconciled people, which is a mission. So for that, let me read a verse 23, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, and chapter 2, verse 1, one more time. This is a gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul is emphasizing. I, comma, Paul. That means he was so honored, so shocked to see himself as a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become a servant by commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in his fullness. The mystery has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now it's disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me, and I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Twice here, Paul said, he became a servant for the gospel of Jesus Christ in verse 23 and 25. Here, we can see Paul using the term servant in the most powerful and the positive sense of the word. Because in verse 24, Paul said, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering. Paul is not just in you know, a servant. Because servant, when it comes suffering, they are very reluctant, you know. Suffering and serving is good, but when it comes to, you know, pain, you, you, know, you don't want to say it. But Paul said, even when suffering came, actually he's rejoicing. He's exuberant. By the way, verse 24 to 29 that I just read, in Greek text is a one long sentence. Actually, it's the longest sentence in the, letter, in the entire Colossian, letter to Colossians. It has a 108 words. This is a longer than previous long sentence, which is a Paul's in a Thanksgiving section in verse 3 to 8, which is, has a 101 word. And one thing Pauline scholars agree about Paul's long, complex sentences, that all of them express Paul's joy. Paul's joy. He's a bursting with a joy and happiness. Now, do you know anyone who is rejoicing in what they are suffering? Do you know anyone? Do you know anyone who is rejoicing in, in what they are suffering? The only people who are rejoicing in suffering, mark my word, are those who are winning. Have you checked the uh, Major League Baseball playoff lately? Look at the Astro, Houston Astro. They haven't lost a single game in the uh, playoff. They won six straight games, sweeping the Seattle Mariners and they yanking the New York mighty, you know, uh, uh, Yankees. I know, Dallas Aitas, jealous. Houstonians, congratulations. You made a Texas proud. Anyway, do you, you know, do, do, you, do you think, you know, the uh, Astro, you know, uh, uh, players ever complain that, oh, man, other baseball major league players are already vacationing in Disney World with their family. Here I am, still flying to Seattle, to New York, one coast to another coast. And how many other cities I have to play, I have to go and play. Do you think they wish to stop playing right now? When you are winning, let me tell you, suffering is good. Suffering is good. When your suffering is meaningful, 
is not hard. By the way, you know what is a hard? Really a hard thing in life is a boredom. Do you know boredom is harder than suffering? I said this before, but for me, meaning of life is a meaningful suffering. Yes. Meaning of life is a meaningful suffering. When you suffer for those whom you love, suffering is more than bearable. Do you know what? Suffering becomes honorable. Suffering becomes honorable. Paul was rejoicing in his suffering because he said, verse 24, that he, I'm filling up in my flesh, once again, physicality, what is still lacking in Christ's affliction for the church. Paul said, I am contributing to Christ's ongoing suffering for the church. By the way, what did Paul mean by filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in Christ's you know, affliction? You know, some New Testament scholars think that Paul was referring to Jewish eschatological thinking that they, Jewish people thought that when a certain amount of uh, righteous suffering is filled, that's when the Messiah come. I think they are definitely wrong because Messiah didn't come even after Holocaust, you know. What else could be worse than Holocaust? point. Apostle Paul was applying the very idea to the second coming of Christ. I'm not sure about that. But what I'm sure about Paul is that Paul previously talked about fellowship of a suffering before. In Colossians chapter 3.10, Paul said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Paul loves Christ. And he wants to know Christ. That's the nature of love. When you love someone, you want, don't you want to know better about that person? And Paul said, I want to know Christ and know his power of resurrection. You know, in order to know the power of resurrection, you have to die. You have to die. You have to suffer. That's what Paul wants to know. Paul wants to know Christ and his suffering for the church. Because he knows how much Christ loves the church. And here, let me quote a, a one more word of a good commentator on this passage. It said, Of course, Christ's redemptive suffering on the cross for our atonement was complete and finished once for all. But that doesn't mean Jesus is the last one to suffer for the gospel. It was a Christ's time to suffer on the cross. Now it is a Paul's Turn to suffer, and perhaps soon it will be yours. Paul believed and loved the gospel of Christ's reconciliation so much that he didn't mind suffering. That's why later, in verse 25 and chapter 2, verse 1, he repeatedly said, I strenuously contending with you, contending for you. And the Greek word for contend is agonimazo, agonimazo, from which we have an English word, agonize. And agonimazo is a, a actually athletic term to describe the struggles of uh, athletes in Greco-Roman competition. So like an athlete who wants to win a game for the honor of his city, Paul loved the church. And a winner, honor for Christ to the point of uh, much suffering. Now, how about us? 
How much do you love body of Christ? How much do we love body of Christ? How much do, do you suffer for your body of Christ, specifically your house church? You know, N.T. Wright once said this, Christians claim that church is a body of Christ, but they forgot the real, actual body of Christ has a skull. Let me repeat that. Christians claim the church is a body of Christ, yet we forgot the actual body of our Savior has a skull. So where is a skull for the body of Christ? Where is your skull for your house church? Or does your house church have a skull for Christ? MBIPs. Or is your house church is all about sugar, not a skull? You know? Sugar, by that, I mean just, you know, fun time, social gathering. Is your house church nothing more than just social gathering? Or it is a meaningful, serious, spiritual gathering? You know, I'm not against sugar because I'm actually addicted to sugar. You know, my breakfast is a coffee and ba you know, pastry, so I start day with the sugar. So sugar is good. I'm not against the sugar. But you know what? If our fellowship is all about just fun, it's good, but we are not living up to the, the, the Christ who kept a scar of his love for us. Scar is, you know, sugar is good, but you have to know, scar is a glory. I really pray forest is more than sugar, that we have a scars for Christ and his honor. Amen? I hope your life has a good scars. Scars for Christ. You know, at church, we, we kind of both. Okay. Church, are you wounded by somebody else? Offended by somebody else? Welcome to community of forgiven sinners. What else do you expect? Do you think this is a heaven? Do you see hello in some of us? We are broken sinners, just like, you know, anybody else. We are the only difference. We are here because of Christ's command and promise. But the thing is this. When you are wounded, don't give up. Cry to Christ to heal you and give you extra strength. What Paul called the power of resurrection. And Christ will turn your wound is a glorious scar. And when I stand before Christ, I want more than anything, I want to show some scars. I want to show some scars. Third driving force of, or ravishment of a reconciled people is a momentum. Momentum is a powerfully opportune time, literally speedy time. What is a momentum of a reconciled? That's the mystery of God. Look at the verse 2 and 5. My goal is that they may be encouraged in the heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of a complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'll tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding argument. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are, how firm your faith in Christ is. Mystery of God is a momentum of a reconciled you know, people. 
And the mystery of God is namely Christ, according to Paul, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So we can defeat all the fine-sounding arguments of a false philosophy. You know, Paul used a mystery three times in our passage today. Verse 26, 27, and chapter 2, verse 2. As I mentioned before, mystery or mysterion in Greek is a non-religious spiritual term at the time. As many mystery religions attracted people. One of the popular mystery religions in the Roman Empire back then was, especially to military, was called Mithraicism. Mithraicism originated in Persia, known for the seven uh, grades of uh, initiation rituals. Apostle Paul today borrowed the term mystery and redefined it for good. And according to Scott McKnight, Mystery is a Paul's favorite term for describing the newness of an age that created his mission. What was once given for Abraham as intended to be a blessing to the nation. Do you guys remember when God called Abraham, God's promise what? I'll bless the whole nation through you. And that blessing is finally fully underway in Paul's mission to Gentile because Paul was carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is a mystery of God promised to Abraham and now fulfilled. And Paul used this mystery in many of his main letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul said, We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, that God destined for our glory before the time began. In Ephesians chapter 3, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known for the people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by Spirit to God's holy, by, uh, to God's holy apostles and prophets. And Romans chapter six, 16, Paul said again, that uh, now to him who is able to establish in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of eternal God. So all the Gentiles might come to the obedience come from faith. Now in Colossians, Paul said the mystery of God is none other than Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's what he said in verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you. Here, Paul was telling us deeper Christological mystery. You know, in cosmic Christology, in previous section, Paul talking about a higher and greater Christ, right? Now he's taking that Christology in totally different direction, and he said, there's a deeper Christology. Guess what that is? Christ in us. Christ in us. We heard many times Paul saying that we are in Christ, in Christ. Paul today telling us Christ in us. You know, many Christians, they think only that Christ came to the world and died for us so that we can go to heaven. They don't realize the real reason that Christ died, came to this world and died for us is so that he can live 
in us, in us, Christ died for you and me so that he can live in each one of us. Paul continues the discourse of Christ in us in verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Christ wants to live in us so that we can be fully mature, meaning fully functioning like a God created us to be. Promise of Christ living in us is actually incredible. You know, this is actually incredible. Because Old Testament talks about the God's promise to be with his people and help them out. But Old Testament never specifically tells us how God will help, with, help out his people. But today, we now know how God will be with us and help us out because he will live in each one of us. Amen? Do you know Christ lives in you? I'm going <clears> to <throat> close the message with uh, one good book introduction. Uh, Robert uh, Boyd Munger, Munger? He's a former pastor, he passed away, of a First Presbyterian Church at uh, Berkeley, California. He wrote a classic uh, uh, sermon, My Heart, Christ's Home. My Heart, Christ's Home. It was actually a Sunday evening sermon, but people really was impacted and asked him to write, and they, he wrote, and it became a bestseller. I'm actually thinking how to use this book. It can be good for the uh, house church retreat, or it can good for the even shopper retreat. It's so good. It's a devotional. It's a short book. You can read a whole book less than 30 minutes. And by the way, you can actually Google whole PDF is in the, you know, you can, you can, you can print the whole thing. Now, he compared the human heart to the house with the different living spaces, such as a study, dining room, living room, workroom, recreation room, whole closet. And as he showed each space to Christ, who was his guest, he slowly but surely cleaned up and changed each room with a Christ suggestion and direction. And then soon the house is functioning better. So last chapter of the book is called the Transferring the Title of the House. So at the end, this is, let me just quote. He said, a thought came to me. Lord, you have been guest to me, uh, you've been guest and I've been host, but from now on, I want to be your servant, and uh, I want you to be the owner and the master. And then Christ said, oh, I love to, but I don't own this house. You're the owner. On that, I run fast to my uh, safe, and I took out the title deed to the house, and then I came to Christ and I say, here, here it is. All that I am and I have forever. Now you run the house. I, either, I will just remain with you as a servant and friend. Things are different since Christ has settled down, has made his home in my heart. And this book ends with these questions and challenge for all of us. Have you surrendered? title of your life to Jesus. Which of the rooms of your heart do you need Jesus work on the most? 
take some time to think over areas of your life. Then spend some time praying and asking Jesus to make those areas pleasing to you. Write down some specific applications and be ready to share about how you will do that. Is a Christ is a guest of your heart or is a host in your heart? Have you transferred your title to Christ? Who is running your life? Who is driving you? What is driving you? Let's pray.